Well, hello and welcome to the next in our series of Unit Editions podcasts. This is a podcast about design manuals, sometimes called standards manuals or style guides. And it marks the publication of Manuals 2, the second in our in-depth surveys of design manuals. The book features manuals from companies and institutions such as Reuters, the Montreal Olympics, Canadian National Railways, IBM, the Dutch police, better than you might think, the furniture company Knoll, and the RAC. There's also essays by US historian Roger Remington and the designer of Mexico 68, Lance Wyman. Interviews with Dutch designer Lisa Anibis and designer Sean Walcott, Michael Burke, and others. There's also an essay by Martha Fleming on her father's identity work for Canadian Railways. You can find out more about Manuals 2 on the Unit Editions website, unititeditions.com. But before I begin talking about design manuals, there's a dark secret that must be confronted. Many graphic designers resent the restrictions imposed on them by the style and brand guidelines that they have not designed themselves. Or to put it another way, the instinct found in many designers to deviate, adapt, improve, is just too deeply ingrained to make following someone else's rules palatable. Of course, it's different if the designer has designed the guidelines him or herself. That's okay. Designers tend to be happy following their own rules. Although even here, most harbour the wish to tinker and adapt as they see fit. This means that all discussions about design manuals must be set against the realisation that unless we have designed them ourselves, design manuals are like other people's holiday snaps. We put up with them to be polite, yet inwardly we resent them. But there's a paradox here. Designers crave freedom, and yet it is widely acknowledged within the world of design that the designer's creative instincts are activated most strongly when he or she comes up against restraints. For most designers, restrictions are an aid to creativity rather than a barrier. And what could be more restrictive than a design manual, brimful of rules and prohibitions? But in the, in the words of that experienced brand and identity designer John Lloyd, co-founder of the British design firm Lloyd Northover, identity guidelines need not be a straitjacket. He quotes the designer Paul Rand, Innovative solutions, says Rand, are more the product of restraints than of freedoms. Today, however, creative freedom and innovative solutions are made less likely by the fact that the brand and style guidelines that we use are usually downloadable templates. We download digital templates from the internet and hey presto, everything's done for us. We are no longer designers, we're template fillers. We barely have to think and when we don't have to think, the outcome will reveal, well, a lack of thought. The identity designer Sean Perkins, founder of the highly regarded British design studio North, expresses the shortcomings of downloadable manuals on purely technical grounds. You lose a great deal, he says. The biggest tragedy of digital manuals is the inability of guidelines to do most of what they are meant to do. You cannot do accurate colour referencing or check type sizes or logotype positions. Accurate format examples and any same size references are impossible. Perkins also identifies the difficulties of supervising what is seen on a screen. 
You cannot control what size or under what conditions people use and refer to the guidelines, he says. With printed guidelines, you are 100% sure everyone is using the same reference. For another designer, Armin Witt, who runs the well-respected website Brand New, the move to digital guidelines has resulted in a loss. A PDF seems so ephemeral, he says. It's hard to take it seriously, especially when it's labelled on the cover as version 1.0 or version 1.5. What's the point of following this if it might change next month, he says. But we've certainly gained the ability to spread the rules faster and more easily, whereas a printed manual resided in the desk drawer of one person and had to be consulted almost by appointment. Witt echoes the views of Sean Perkins when he highlights the inadequacies of digital style guides to control colour management. An important thing we've lost in PDF and online guidelines, he says, is the ability for designers to really understand colour management and asset reproduction. With a PDF, it's all in RGB and it's all low res. With a printed manual, you're forced to understand how the identity prints and reproduces. John Lloyd shares both Perkins and Witt's enthusiasm for printed manuals, but he acknowledges that ultimately we need both, printed and digital guidelines. Online guidelines have many advantages over printed manuals, he says. Artwork and templates can be readily accessed and advice and help can be easily provided. But without a printed manual to hand, digital guidelines can feel remote and to see an example of a logo or a particular application in print makes it much more real and immediate. So the ideal solution is to have a concise and easily updated overview document in print and a comprehensive set of instructions and implementation tools online. So, despite these informed and rational arguments in favour of printed manuals, it's clear that there's no likelihood of a revival in the use of weighty printed manuals. Apart from the occasional look and feel document, usually more of a PR brochure than a style manual, the in-depth printed manual is no longer economically viable. And as graphic design gets sucked down the digital rabbit hole, many designers have started to look at these old dinosaur volumes in a new light. Suddenly, to modernise, blinded by the glare of pixel-sharp computer screens, printed manuals are revealed as beautifully crafted objects. The sheer skill and painstaking detail that is evident in the best examples, not to mention their often splendid and hefty physical presence, demands that we treat them with a sort of reverence. As Perkins notes, a printed book has an inherent value as an object. It's tangible. You can create drama, pace, structure in a book, something that's less easy to create on screen. Okay, so what factors explain the reverence amongst many contemporary designers for the great manuals from the 60s and 70s? Is it merely nostalgia for the pre-digital era, when there was enough time to produce these volumes, some of them uh, running into many, many editions? For the most part, the best manuals adhere to the principles of graphic modernism and more particularly to the Swiss style, also known as the international style, or die neue Graphique. This austere visual grammar, with its bold use of white space, small repertoire of sans-serif typefaces, and reliance on strict modular grids, established itself in America in the mid-20th century. 
Joseph Muller-Brockman's lecture at the International Design Conference in Aspen in 1955 is widely regarded as one of the main catalysts for the adoption of the new ultra-disciplined approach. Of course, not everyone welcomed this cuckoo in the nest of American design. Advertising agencies in particular resented the lack of expressive qualities in the new style, with its whiff of European socialism and proletarian standardization. Herb Lubalin, though not personally unsympathetic to the Swiss style, saw it as the antithesis to the American way of life. In an essay in print magazine in 1979, he wrote, The more intellectual Bauhaus style and the formalized Swiss approach to design has no appeal and did not relate to the rank-and-file American. This work, he said, had its validity in the business community and in such special interest groups as the medical profession, and still does. Lubalin is correct in identifying the new style's suitability for the business community, and note his veiled reference to the Swiss pharmaceutical industry, one of the great patrons of Swiss modernism. But it's no coincidence that the arrival of the Swiss style coincided with the rise of corporate identity in the 1950s, and it was amongst the identity designers that the style was most avidly adopted. Hardly surprising since the grid-based, hyper-rational layouts and stark use of limited colour palettes were perfectly suited for use in style manuals. Manuals that had to be understood and then followed by individuals, sometimes with limited design skills. As was the case with the famous New York subway guidelines, where the instructions had to be followed by sign makers and other untrained people. A more political explanation for the attraction to a new audience of the great printed manuals is that these documents stand as evidence of an era when business and institutions were concerned with projecting an image of probity and social responsibility. Today, there is near universal mistrust of corporations. There have been too many mass redundancies, too many tax evasion cases, and too many environmental disasters for us to do anything other than loathe these business leviathans that often wield as much power on the international stage as governments. Yet it's possible to regard the, at least some of the early global corporations as benevolent and well-intentioned. And when we look back at the great manuals of the past, they appear to be rational, well-tempered, often highly technical documents that show corporations in a neutral, if not quite benevolent, light. Today, we're rightly cynical about businesses attaching themselves to good causes, or espousing social reform. But as early as 1964, Xerox spent a year's advertising budget on a series of TV programs about the work being done by the United Nations. For their support of a humanitarian cause, Xerox received many thousands of letters of complaint, believed to have been instigated by the John Birch Society, a notorious right-wing pressure group in the USA. And in 1968, the company incurred the wrath of the Ku Klux Klan, when the openly racist organization's imperial wizard returned a Xerox copying machine because of his disapproval of the company's sponsorship of a TV documentary entitled Of Black America. Now, manuals not only found a use in big business, they also had a role in civic projects, such as transport systems, public information programs, and, of course, sporting events such as the Olympic Games. As one commentator noted, the design guidelines are the graphic core of the Olympic Games. These manuals contain all elements for a systematic design of the events. Without these guidelines, the presentation of the games would be totally chaotic. 
the design guidelines, also called graphic standards, graphic manuals, usage guidelines, or design manuals, were first published in Tokyo in 1964. So, designers have reasons to be infatuated with printed manuals. Let's put theorizing and speculation aside for a moment and consider the idea that the strongest claim manuals can make on our affections is that they are amongst the best examples of pure information design in graphic design. As Massimo Vignelli noted, the definition of a good manual is a manual that gets used. In other words, they are functioning documents with a clear purpose and an explicit role to play. Looking at the examples assembled in this book, we can only marvel at the skill and dedication that went into their making. So when designers were required to adhere to corporate design guidelines in the pre-digital era, they were usually obliged to consult multi-volume sets of printed instructions, containing hundreds of do's and don'ts, and numberless rules and regulations governing the use of typefaces, colours and graphical elements. Today, these printed brand guidelines are ancient history, graphic design dinosaurs, unwieldy slabs of paper and ink housed in an assortment of binding options that include everything from metal ring binders to slipcases that would not look out of place in an antiquarian bookshop. And now, if these grandiose tomes have not been thrown out, they are tucked away in cupboards and storage units, forgotten and ghostly, like maps of cities that have been changed beyond recognition, or that no longer exist archaeological relics of graphic design and corporate history. Design historian Roger Remington has written an essay for Manuals 2, and in it he says, In the archaeology of graphic design, corporate graphics standards manuals are now tangible artifacts of the past. Although many are hidden on obscure bookshelves in design offices, standards manuals are useful reminders of an important era in which corporations and organizations find it necessary to identify themselves and to control their identities. These guides provide contemporary students, teachers, and scholars of design with valuable objects for inquiry, analysis, and research. Manuals grew out of a specific modern business requirement that surfaced in the 1950s, namely the need that the early large corporations had for control of their public image. As the design historian Philip Meggs has noted, the Industrial Revolution, with its mass manufacturing and marketing, increased the value and importance of trademarks for visual identification. But the visual identification systems that began during the 1950s went beyond trademarks or symbols. The national and multinational scope of many corporations made it difficult for them to maintain a cohesive image. But by unifying all communications from a given organisation into a consistent design system, such an image could be projected and the design system enlisted to help accomplish specific corporate goals. So that was Philip Meggs. Before World War II, businesses had what was called a house style. Back then, a company's visual presence was often not much more than a trademark or symbol and a designated colour. And consequently, house style was characterised by lack of systematic planning. Consistency was not greatly prized, and besides, it was fairly easy to maintain a cohesive visual appearance since most firms operated in domestic settings and media outlets were far less plentiful than they are today. It's generally accepted that the first example of a systematic design program applied to an industrial company was for the German electrical manufacturing company AEG. It was created by Peter Behrens, a self-taught designer and architect. 
Behrens began working with AEG in 1907. He was initially introduced to work on the design of the company's products, such as light fittings, but his role was soon expanded to include industrial architecture and the company's printed communication materials. Behrens was an early example of an external design consultant. The first comprehensive corporate design program in the USA was initiated by the Container Corporation of America. The company was amongst the first of the new conglomerates to recognize and harness the power of good visual design. As early as 1936, the firm's owner, Walter Papke, appointed an art director, Egbert Jacobson, to oversee the corporation's visual output. By 1945, the designer Herbert Baer was acting as a consultant to the company. In the same year, Baer organized an exhibition entitled Modern Art in Advertising at the Art Institute of Chicago. This celebrated show, which featured work by Baer, Cassandra, Ferdinand Leger, Jean Carlou, and Ben Shan, was evidence of a new, accommodating approach to art by big business. One of the prime sources of inspiration in the USA for the adoption of design as a business differentiator was Olivetti. In 1936, Adriano Olivetti, son of the firm's founder, hired the graphic designer Giovanni Pintori to mastermind Olivetti's graphic appearance. But, as Philip Meggs notes, the Olivetti identity was achieved not through a systematic design program, but through the general visual appearance of promotional graphics. This lack of a systematic approach, however, did not prevent Thomas J. Watson, son of the founder of IBM, from adopting Olivetti as the inspiration behind the company's desire for a cohesive and more engaging visual presence. Watson was instrumental in using design as a driver of business success in post-war America. When he later compared some of Olivetti's graphics with a selection of IBM's, he saw that the Olivetti material was filled with colour and excitement and fit together like a beautiful picture puzzle. Ours, he said, looked like directions on how to make bicarbonate of soda. In 1956, Watson hired Paul Rand to lead this aesthetic assault on American business. But by far the most prolific decade for corporate identity was the 1980s and the 1990s. These decades saw an unprecedented explosion of growth. Design companies grew rich on the back of the corporate desire for global and domestic expansion and frenzied bouts of acquisition. As soon as plans were finalised and deals signed, corporations turned from the besuited corporate lawyers to the besuited corporate identity designers. Firms such as Landor, Lippincott and Margulis, Chemayev and Geismeyer, Siegel and Gale and Wolf Olins dominated the international market. Books were written and the theory of corporate identity became embedded in business philosophy. Eventually, the era of corporate identity gave way to a far more virulent and penetrating ideology, branding. Today, branding is almost independent of graphic design. In many instances, giant corporations use branding consultants with designers in a wholly subservient and semi-menial role. Corporations base their decisions on focus group findings and market research. There are no figures in branding to rival the creative verve of Paul Rand, Saul Bass, or Giovanni Pintori. And good designers look elsewhere to find a home for creative energies and dynamic expression. But Manuals 2 is not a book about corporate identity or branding. 
Rather, it's a book about the manuals produced to ensure that the great design-led corporate identities of organizations and institutions in the 1960s to the early 80s were successfully and consistently implemented and maintained over geography and time. It's a celebration of the splendid volumes produced to ensure visual consistency in the age of print. It is an affectionate and respectful survey of a range of documents that have few equals in the field of information design. But by far the most admirable feature of these victims of graphic design Darwinism is their unrivaled skill at providing clear instructions that can be followed, often by non-designers, with accuracy and ease. I began this talk by saying that designers rarely liked to follow the instructions of other designers. But there's a far greater source of disappointment, namely that no designer likes seeing badly implemented or misinterpreted use of the identities that they have created. At least, with the manuals featured in this book, all of them superb examples of their breed, it would be a callous designer who deviated from their instructions.